Well, church, let me encourage you, if you would, to go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in the book of First Peter. We're going to be specifically in First Peter chapter 2 this morning. And, and we're actually wrapping up our time in the first two chapters of First Peter. If you're new to Shades, we've been walking through First Peter 1 and 2 for, for most of the spring. And we're going to take a little break uh, for, for the summer here and come back to First Peter chapter 3 when the school year gets started. So today we're coming to the end of 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you're turning there in your Bible, I do want to just follow up on the, the video that y'all saw a moment ago, the fun of VBS, the excitement of this week of VBS, and just say my personal thanks to all who served, to all who were involved. We saw so many kids encounter the good news of Jesus in such a beautiful, beautiful way. And I do want to thank publicly one specific group because the amazing thing about VBS is you have so many people who pull together in the same direction. But there is a group of people on our staff team that often go unnoticed. They're behind the scenes and they work so hard, especially on a week like VBS. It's our readiness team who helps us put together, clean, oversee all of our facilities here at Shaves Mountain. Would you join me in thanking those who are on our readiness team? Because they do an amazing Amazing, amazing job. And in fact, I can tell you the reason why you here today see no sign of VBS whatsoever other than the video you just watched a moment ago is because our readiness team worked like crazy to tear down the Western town, to tear down all the cowboy stuff and to get us back to a normal Sunday here at Shades. And we're just so grateful for all they do. Hey, we're, we're stepping into some challenging verses here this morning. I just want to say that right up front. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, where the Word of God takes us. It's, it's a little uncomfortable. I believe it's going to create some tension in the room. I also believe it's going to create some tension in your own life as we consider these verses. Because these verses are all about the gospel and injustice. What does the gospel say to injustice? How does the gospel call us to respond to injustice? It's what we see right here out of the gate in verse 18. So as we consider the word of God, I want to ask you to be in prayer for me as I deliver the word of God, but also for all of us listening, receiving the word of God, that, that, that the word of God would fall on fertile ground in our hearts and our minds. Because anytime the word of God challenges us or provokes us to think deeply, it's, the reality can be that we can go away from what the word of God is wanting us to see. And we don't want to do that in our, in our flesh. We want to trust the spirit of God to lead us and guide us. I think you'll see what I mean here as we read these verses. So I want to invite you to stand with me as I read from God's word. And if you're new to Shades, we do this every week. We stand for the reading of God's word because the word of God is our foundation. This is where we stand as the people of God. We stand on the solid rock foundation of what God says is right and good and true in his word. First Peter chapter two, verse 18, it says this. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. We stand on the word of God. Let's pray and invite the spirit of God to guide us in this time that we would see what God desires for us to see on this day. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now needing to hear from you, the God reigning over all people and all things and all time and all space. We need to hear from you. And so I pray, Lord God, that the promise of your word to not return void would come into our lives here today. That the living and active word would show us what we need to see. The living and active word would instruct us where we need instruction. That the living and active word would draw us closer to you. Please, Lord, use this time for your glory. We lift this up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When we step into the word of God and we see some verses that are dealing with a very, very painful, challenging topic like slavery in the first century of the Roman Empire, it can create all kinds of tension in the room. Certainly this can be challenging to navigate. And so I want to say a couple of things right up front. Number one, I am so grateful that the word of God does not shy away from tough and challenging conversations. I'm so grateful that the word of God acknowledges the reality of suffering and acknowledges the reality of brokenness and acknowledges the reality of difficulty and invites us to think deeply on these things. At the same time, I am so grateful that even as the word of God addresses the reality of the first century and, and where many people find, found themselves in the, the system of slavery that was so alive in the Roman empire, I'm so grateful that the word of God in addressing this reality does not condone, endorse, or affirm slavery in any form or fashion. I'm so grateful that the word of God is clear in confronting the evils and the sinfulness of slavery. 
I'm so grateful that the word of God shows us a a new way with a new people, with a new body, with a new family that is the reality because of what Christ has done. We get to stand on the good news of this gospel, this gospel that actually abolishes sinful attitudes of superiority, this gospel that actually abolishes the sinfulness that is so alive at times in the human heart. This gospel that levels the playing field. It says there is this new creation united in a body, in a family because of what Christ has done. Let me give you a couple of examples of that and then we'll step into 1 Peter chapter two. First, I wanna turn your attention to Galatians chapter three, a statement that the apostle Paul makes about the power and the authority of the gospel and what it does to bring people from different places, different stories, different contexts, different backgrounds together because of what Christ has done as a new family, a new people people. Galatians 3, 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ. What is this saying? This is saying, look, regardless of where you come from, regardless of your race, regardless of your class, even, and this is important in our culture today, regardless of your gender or your background or your family of origin or your nationality, if you are in Christ, Christ, you have been invited into a new family, a family that is united on the good news of what Christ has done. And as a part of this family, if you are in Christ, you are an heir to the kingdom of God as a child of God. That is good news. But not only that, we are reminded this good news, it's, it's radical. It's revolutionary in the Roman Empire and it's radical and it's revolutionary in our culture and our context today. It's good news that boldly proclaims the walls that so often divide us, what scripture calls the walls of hostility are torn down because of the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. And you see this in Ephesians chapter two. I wanna turn there real quickly and then we'll step into 1 Peter. Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 through 16 says this about what Christ has done. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, listen to this, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The word of God reminds us through sin, man loves to build walls. And the gospel of Jesus Christ loves to tear them down. Whether that's the walls of of racism, whether that's the walls of classism, whether that's the walls of sexism, whether that's the walls of elitism, the gospel loves to tear them down because the gospel provides a new way. And the gospel provides peace 
for all who are part of the family of God to come together as one united in what Christ has done. This is foundational to what the scripture lays out for the people of God. This must be our starting place as we enter into a challenging conversation as it relates to how do we encounter injustice. So why does the apostle Peter, why does the word of God provide instructions to those who are in slavery in the Roman empire in the first century? Well, we talked about this a little bit last week in a little different version of the same conversation. This passage is all about authority and how we interact with authority, even sinful authority or evil authority or the authorities that are over us that we do not agree with. And we can see the call of scripture for the people of God when interacting with authority we don't agree with is to do good in the sight of God and to honor everyone as an individual made in the image of God, even if we don't agree with them or what they're doing. And here, Peter is speaking specifically to the reality of those who are living in a system that is certainly painful and difficult to live in the midst of. And he is using this as an example to show that if you are a follower of Christ and you face injustice, which you will, we're gonna talk about that. There is a way to respond that the follower of Christ has been called to because of what Christ has done. Peter acknowledges injustice as real. And then says, if you are in Christ, you are called to respond to injustice in a very specific way. So look back at 1 Peter chapter 2 with all that as our background. We come to verse 19 where it says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a, this is a, gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter is speaking to a group of individuals who are suffering unjustly. And he's asking them to consider in faith, and this is a very significant step of faith, how will you respond? based on what Christ has done and the injustice that you're now receiving from the hands of others, the treatment that you don't deserve, the unfair treatment that you are experiencing, how will you respond? And Peter is taking us right back to what we saw last week in the previous verses, reminding us there is an authority that is higher, there is an authority that is reigning over any human authority in your life. And Peter is saying, when you are facing injustice, when you are underneath the authority of someone or something that is incredibly unfair, first, you must be reminded there is an ultimate authority who is reigning supreme. He is the sovereign God over all things. 
And when you are focused on him and what he has given you in Christ as you endure suffering at the hands of others, you are invited to be a demonstration of the grace of God that you have received. It's not easy. But you've been invited to demonstrate the grace of God that has been poured out over your life through Christ. You've been invited to demonstrate dignity and strength that comes because you are called a child of God. You're pointing to a greater authority. And Peter says this is a gracious thing. This is a, this is a beautiful thing. This is a powerful thing. And it reminds us of what Peter said in verse 15. This is what we looked at again last week where he says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Can I just tell everyone, we need to hear this. Grace in the face of injustice is a powerful thing. It's not an easy thing, but it's a powerful thing. Grace in the face of injustice is a beautiful force. It's unusual. It stands out. And so Peter is reminding us here that when we face injustice, when we suffer unfairly at the hands of others, this is not an excuse for us to respond in sin. This is an invitation to respond in a way that points to a gracious thing, to respond in a way that points to a God who has poured out grace on us. Peter is actually saying the greatest offense against the sin of another coming against you is the grace of God in your life. And then verse 20 says this, for what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You see, Peter is saying, look, I wanna make this clear. This is not just about trying to be tough when you face hardship. And this is not just about being tough when, when you face the consequences of your sin. There are times in your life when you're gonna face the consequences of your sin. Peter's saying, no, I'm talking about when you face suffering at the hands of another that is injustice, it's not because of something you've done. It's not something that you deserve. When, when, when you face that kind of suffering and you endure in grace, it's actually a beautiful, beautiful picture of what Christ has done for you. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter is saying the grace of God is on display in your life when you face what is unfair or unjust and you are reminded of the grace of God for you and you lead with the grace of God for another. This is hard, this is difficult, and this is painful. But through the lens of the gospel, it is beautiful. And that's where Peter takes us. 
He says, I, I, I know that some of you right now, and this, this is true for people in this room for sure. This is true of some of you watching this online. You, you have suffered injustice that is so unfair. I know it's true of some of you. You have suffered at the hands of others, not because of something you've done, but just simply because there, there is evil and there is sin and there is brokenness in this world. And I want you to know, Peter is saying, in acknowledging the reality of injustice, you can now see how amazing the Savior truly is in what he's done for you. Because the greatest act of injustice that the world has ever seen was the injustice that was thrown upon Jesus Christ, the only sinless, innocent, spotless man who has ever lived. And in the midst of that horrific injustice, God is demonstrating his love and grace for you. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Isn't it amazing that as Peter is talking to a group of people who are suffering injustice, who, who, are, who are in the midst of this horrific system of slavery and evil and sin. And he's saying, let me remind you of true freedom. And let me remind you of liberation. And let me remind you of what the Savior endured so that in the midst of your suffering, you would know you are not alone. You have a savior who has gone before you and you have a God who loves you and sees you. And Peter's saying, look, Jesus has given us an example here. There's more to it and he's gonna show us that as well. But he's saying Jesus has given us an example. And as he says this, I, I do need to make this statement. This is, this is reminding us of some very challenging truths of the Christian faith that we in the United States of America often are able to ignore or, or if we don't ignore them, we don't know what to do with them. The first truth is, is this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will face suffering. Like, and this is, not, this is not a popular sermon to preach. I'll just tell you right now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will face suffering. That's not the statement that's gonna be put out on Twitter tomorrow. That's not the statement that rallies a crowd. That's not the statement that says, oh yeah, I want some of that. No, that's a statement that we don't know what to do with. It makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to hear it. We've had things good for a long time in this culture of church. And we don't want to think if you follow Jesus, you're going to face suffering. And yet, all throughout the word of God, we see if you follow Jesus, you're going to face suffering. All throughout the history of the church, we see if you follow Jesus, you're going to face suffering and you're going to face suffering because you follow Jesus. 
We want to think we're immune from suffering because we're at church or because we call ourselves a Christian. And yet the scripture is saying, no, no, no. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to suffer because you follow Jesus. It's a hard thing to hear. But we need to see what the scripture reveals about that. Secondly, though, and this is incredibly important, this is where Peter takes us in this text. He's reminding us that if you are a follower of Christ, when you do face suffering, the way you endure or the way you face suffering, it should look different from the world. The world is not your model in how to navigate injustice. The world is not your model in how to navigate suffering. The way you endure suffering, if you are a follower of Jesus, should look different from the world. So first, let's, let's talk about this reality. If you are in Christ, you will suffer. You will face suffering. I wanna turn your attention real quickly to the Gospel of John. We'll come back to 1 Peter 2 in a moment. Would you turn over to the Gospel of John? It's right near the beginning of the New Testament. There's two passages I wanna look at. First, I wanna look at the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. This is the prayer that Jesus prays right before he goes to the cross. He's praying for his followers. He's praying for those who will believe in him. He's praying for those who will trust in him. These are, in a sense, his last words in, in praying to the Father on behalf of his followers. And so we see his heart on display. We see what he longs for, for his people, for his church. He says this as he prays in verse 14 of John 17, I've given them your word. Listen to this. Don't miss this. It's, it's, it's not just here, it's all throughout the scripture. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Isn't that what we've been talking about all throughout 1 Peter? That Peter writes to the early church and he says, you are sojourners, you are exiles, you are strangers living in a foreign land. You know, Peter got that from Jesus. All right? he, he listened to what Jesus said and, and, and Jesus is saying right now in this prayer, the world will hate those who follow me because they're strangers, they're sojourners, they're exiles. They're not of this world, just like I, Jesus says, am not of this world. But then he says this, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you will keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world. So I've sent them into the world. Jesus is saying, as he prays, look, if you follow Jesus, there is a reason why when you trust your life to Jesus Christ, you don't have one of those beam me up Scotty moments where you're gone. No, you're still here. Why? You have a purpose. You have a mission. You are to live as one in this world who's not of the world. You are to live as one who is sent. The way we say this at Shades Mountain is we're to leverage who we are and what we've been given for the sake of the gospel wherever we are and wherever God takes us. That's our purpose in being here. Come straight from Jesus. But Jesus is saying, look, if you live your purpose, if you leverage your life, if you believe that you have been sent, you will be shining the light of Christ in a dark world. 
And when you shine the light of Christ in a dark world, it illuminates some things that people don't want illuminated. And it reveals in people some things that they don't want seen. And it exposes some, some things in people that maybe they're not real proud of or they're ashamed of, or maybe it exposes that they love these things hidden in the dark. And when that's exposed, they're gonna come after you. The world's not gonna like it. The world doesn't want the light shown in the darkness. Why is that? Well, Jesus actually tells us in another passage of John's gospel, John chapter three, the great chapter that gives us the famous statement, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The beautiful proclamation of salvation through Jesus, John three sixteen. Look at what he says right after that. John three nineteen and 20 gives us insight into why the world hates the light which gives us insight into why those who are followers of Christ will suffer because of Christ. John 3, 19 says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. What, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, look, the light of the gospel is blinding to those who love their sin. We need to be aware of this in our culture today. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it is blinding to those who love their sin. The light of the world is terrifying to those who love their sin. And those who love their sin in the darkness will seek to extinguish the light. Here's why. Because the light exposes them and the light shows them that the idols they have built their life upon are actually decaying. This is why there's such a harsh response by those in our culture who don't like what the word of God says about name your topic. Because when you've built your life on an idol and the light shines on the idolatry and reveals that the idol actually is decaying in your hands, you're gonna fight. You're gonna fight to try and prove that you're right. You're gonna fight to try and prove that that idol is a good enough God for you. And you're gonna have people do whatever they can to try and extinguish the light that is revealing the brokenness of idolatry. And so they will hate the light and they will hate those who carry the light. And so Jesus is showing us, if you follow Jesus, there are going to be times where you're going to face injustice, you're gonna face suffering because you follow Jesus and the world does not like the light shining in the darkness. The world loves sin. And yet when the light shines on that sin and shows that it is decaying, the world so often doubles down. And the world tries to reconstruct their idols as they fall apart in their hands. 
If you follow Jesus, you will face suffering. You need to know this. You need to understand this. You, you need to be prepared for this. I want to read a portion of a commentary on 1 Peter 2. is written by Juan Sanchez. I've quoted from this before in this sermon series. But he writes this about this text of 1 Peter 2. He says, The sad reality is that in the West, materialistic prosperity, daily comfort, and cultural acceptance have diluted our view of suffering as Christians. Now, this would not be true if you go to other parts of the world. This would not be true if you encountered Christians in the Middle East or you encountered Christians in certain parts of Southeast Asia, North Africa. This would not be true. This is true of our context here in the United States. Our view of suffering has been diluted because of prosperity, because of comfort, and because of cultural acceptance. And then he says, we're very pleased that Jesus bore his cross for us, but we hope we can avoid bearing a cross to follow him. That's a hard statement to hear. He says, we need to realize that suffering is part of living faithfully for all of us, not merely an add-on for super keen believers. And we need to seek to live such a vibrant faith that it cannot and does not go unchallenged by the world. I just wonder how many of us could give personal examples of how our faith has been challenged by the world. Or how many of us would say, well, the world doesn't even know that I have faith. Are you living such a vibrant faith that your faith cannot go unchallenged by the world? And then Sanchez writes, when suffering comes, we need to let Peter point us to Jesus and suffer well. That is a very challenging hermeneutic for the American church, suffering well. Do we know how to suffer well? He says, suffering well is neither compromising in our conduct nor aggressively attacking those who persecute us. At moments of unjust suffering, we discover who we worship, comfort or Christ. Don't you hate that quote? It's hard. But doesn't that quote just read us? It's hard for us to admit that if you follow Jesus, you'll face suffering. We don't want to think about that. But if you follow Jesus, you will face suffering and you will discover who you worship. Do you worship comfort? Or do you worship the Savior? We go back to... First Peter chapter two, and we see this other challenging reality that the scripture lays before us that the way you suffer, can you suffer well? Do you suffer as a follower of Jesus, specifically in the face of injustice? Does your life look different from the world? First Peter 2, 22 says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now here, Peter is actually taking us back to the old covenant. He's taking us back to the Old Testament, to the prophecy of Isaiah that points to the Messiah. And Peter is reminding the, the early church that, that, that this is exactly what the prophet said would happen. That the Savior would come, 
that he would stand in the face of injustice, that he would suffer unjustly and that there would be no deceit in his mouth and that he would not even open his mouth in defense of himself because he knows why he's there. Let me take you real quickly to Isaiah 53 and just read a couple of these verses. It's so powerful and so beautiful when you realize how Peter is connecting the church back to the prophecy. Isaiah 53 verse seven says this of the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And this to me reveals one of the most amazing gifts of our savior, one of the most beautiful demonstrations of the perfection and the sinlessness of our savior is that as he faces injustice and as he goes to the cross wrongfully accused because there was no sin in him, as he faces evil at the hands of others that is completely unfair based on the way he has lived, he opens not his mouth. He does not plead his case. He does not defend himself. And I don't know about you, but I just got to confess before you in my life, when I feel like I'm facing injustice of any kind, the first thing I usually do is open my mouth. There you go. That's an amen. In my life, when I feel like I'm being wrongly accused of something, I immediately go on the defense. I'm just telling you, and I gotta tell you this because it happened yesterday in my house. <laughs> Megan pointed something out to me. I didn't like it. I felt like it was unfair. Whether or not it was is not the point of this story. <laughs> but I got defensive. I began to plead my case. It was a good case, a very good case. And as I was pleading my case and really beginning to look like a fool, I just kept going. And when the conversation came to an end, I thought to myself, isn't this great that I get to preach this tomorrow? <laughs> it's so easy to get defensive. We can see all the wrongs that others are doing. It's so easy to plead our case, to open our mouth. And isn't it absolutely staggering to consider that a savior who loves you and loves me willingly, willfully received injustice and did not open his mouth. Because he knew, he knew that he was receiving that injustice for a reason. And he knew that stepping right into the midst of injustice was the only way that you and I would ever be free. He committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. And he did not even open his mouth. Why? Why? 
Peter tells us, verse 23, because he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. I want to ask all of us, will you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly? When we talk about the sovereignty of God, when we talk about the authority of God, when we talk about the God who is reigning over all, what we are saying is there is a God who is just, who judges justly. He has the authority and the power to do so. And there is coming a day when every single person will face justice. What will that be like? Well, first, Peter gives us this beautiful picture of what Christ did in the face of injustice. Verse 24 and 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Praise God, for you were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly because he knew he was giving his life so that justice could be served and so that those who place their trust in him would not have to face judgment, but would receive grace. And that grace would be just because the perfect spotless lamb of God took our sin on his back. This is really, really good news if you're in Christ. Really, really good news. It means that someday, whenever this day comes, that you are to give an account before God for what you have done and how you have lived. If you are in Christ, you will not be giving an account for all the things you've done. God will look at you. The father will look at you and he'll see the son. He'll see the perfect spotless lamb of God and the blood that covers your sin. And he'll say, come on. You're part of the family, come on. Come into my presence forevermore. You are welcome here. You are invited here. You are one of mine. Come on in. Come to the banquet table. Come to the celebration. Come to the joy. And that will be just because you have placed your life in the hands of the one who died for you. But at the same time, there are others who who choose to take justice into their own hands, who choose to try and be the force of justice for their own life. They they choose to try and defend themselves and do it their way. They're not entrusting their their life to the one who judges justly. They're entrusting their life to themselves. And there is coming a day where, where they will have to give an account before God. And the only account they'll be able to give will be based on what they have done. And immediately as that account begins to be given, they will realize there is nowhere for me to stand. Because even in my best attempts to bring about justice, there is sin and injustice in what I am doing. And even in my best attempts to bring about fairness for me, there is sin and brokenness and injustice in what I am doing. I need a savior. The savior is my only hope. I do not want to try and give an account for what I've done before a holy God because I have nothing to say. 
And so it just brings us back to the question, who, who do you entrust your life to? Will you entrust your life to the one who judges justly, who invites you to receive the gift of righteousness through the judgment of the cross that was taken on your behalf by Jesus Christ? Or are you entrusting your life to yourself? Oh, what a gift it is to see in our longing for justice that justice is served. And what a gift it is to see that when we place our faith in the one who judges justly, we are invited to receive grace and mercy that says, come on in. You are part of the family of God. You are invited to be with the Father forevermore. That's our God who is sovereign and reigning over all. Let me pray for us as I close our time. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And in the midst of some challenging, challenging verses, Lord, I pray, I pray that we can see clearly this incredible gift that you have provided through Jesus Christ. And for those who are with us today who have never received this gift of grace in a personal way, I pray, Lord God, that today would be the day. In their longing for justice, in their longing for wrongs to be made right, I pray, Lord God, that they would see what you have done in the face of the greatest act of injustice the world ever encountered. You offered your perfect and sinless life so that we might be forgiven and free. Oh Lord, if there are any among us who have not received that good news, this gospel declaration of the Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life at the cross so that our sin might be forgiven, so that we might be called a child of God, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would say, Jesus, I am ready. I've been fighting, I've been trying to do this on my own, but Jesus, I am ready to entrust my life to the God who judges justly and who is inviting me to receive the gift of Jesus so that I can be right with you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for the power and authority of your word. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.